Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and across the table from me is Herb Tarlick. WKRP in Vancouver. Yeah, right. Uh, If you don't know who Herb Tarlick is, uh, it's not important because it's actually Matthew Stockton. And I do know where we actually are now. We're in Langley. Yes. Yes. (laughs) In the city of Langley. We're not in Langley Township. We're in Langley City. I don't understand all that nonsense. Like, well, there's Fort Langley, then there's the city of Langley, and there's Langley Township. It's too confusing for people like me. You're a Langman. I'm a Langman. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Peter Vasilievich Verigan, also known as Lordy, was a highly respected and influential leader among the Dukabors. The Dukabors had migrated to Canada from Russia in 1899, seeking a new life and religious freedom. Verigan was pivotal in guiding and inspiring them to create a strong and united community based on their religious beliefs. However, Tragedy struck in 1924, casting a dark shadow over Verrigan's legacy. An explosion occurred on car 1586 of the Kettle Valley line, resulting in the loss of Verrigan's life, the life of his companion, and six others. The devastating incident left people shocked and searching for answers. Some suspected that fanatics or government agents might have been responsible, while others believed that fellow Dukabors or accidental causes played a role. The truth behind this tragic event remains a mystery, and the case remains unsolved officially. This is Dark Poutine episode 272, Kettle Valley Train Explosion, The Death of Peter Verrigan. Despite his popularity and reverence, Verrigan was not without his critics. Some Dukabors questioned his authority, and were unhappy with his willingness to comply with government laws and regulations. This led to tensions and disagreements within the community. The loss of Verrigan was a tremendous blow to the Dukabors who had looked up to him as their spiritual leader. The investigation into the explosion and the circumstances surrounding Verrigan's death left many unanswered questions and added to the sorrow and confusion amongst his followers. It remains a haunting mystery that continues to captivate the imagination and curiosity of those who seek to uncover the truth behind this tragic event. Peter Vasilievich Verigan was born on June 29, 1859, into a family with a long history of being part of the Dukabor community. The Dukabors were originally a group of peasants from southern Russia with unique beliefs. They began to form their ideas in the 17th century under the influence of a preacher named Danilo Filipov. 
The Dukabors rejected traditional church rituals and didn't believe in following secular governments. They were strong believers in peace and equality. In fact, they believed that every person had a divine spark inside them, so harming someone was like harming God. They even opposed using icons, which are pictures or statues of religious figures, because they thought it was a form of idol worship. I kind of think that too, but anyway. Idol worship. Yeah. Southern Russia. Yes. Russia's 11 time zones wide. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, so Southern Russia seems like a strange term, but actually it's, it's used to mean the southern part of European Russia. Yes. And I, I do like the word iconoclasts. They were iconoclasts. Yes, they were. They were indeed. And we'll talk about that oh, later. Yeah. Instead of focusing on icons, the Dukabors had their own rituals. They used symbols like bread, salt, and water in their ceremonies. They passed down their teachings through oral psalms, through oral psalms known as the living, and through oral psalms and songs known as the living book. They made decisions as a group in community meetings, valuing the thoughts and opinions of each person. While they respected their chosen leaders, they believed that everyone was an equal because of the divine presence within them. Although not all live in communal settings today, many still choose to be vegetarians. And one thing all Dukabors agree on is their commitment to peace and nonviolence. Because the Dukabors disagreed with the Orthodox Church and the powerful Tsarist government, they faced challenges on both religious and political fronts. In 1785, an archbishop of the Orthodox Church labeled certain individuals as Dukoborets, meaning they were considered heretics who opposed the Holy Spirit. However, the Dukabors reinterpreted this term to define themselves as true spirit wrestlers, or holy people. Dukaborets. Yes. The word is actually really dismissive sounding in Russian. Okay. It's not, it's not a literal translation of spirit wrestlers, but it comes from those two words. Okay. Um, and, and it really does kind of sound negative. It makes them sound kind of insignificant. Really? Yeah. Oh, uh, interesting. Just to my ear, knowing some Russian. Due to their religious descent and the close alliance between the Russian Orthodox Church and the representative Tsarist political system, these Dukabor dissenters faced persecution on both religious and political fronts. In the early 19th century, they were forcibly relocated to areas bordering the expanding Russian Empire. Throughout the 19th century, the Dukabors were moved twice more, eventually settling in the mountainous Caucasus region situated between the Black and Caspian Seas. Yeah, they didn't really settle there, though, did they? Mm. Uh, they were forcibly settled there. Uh, Russia and the Soviet Union has a long history of, quote, relocating people. Yeah, they've been doing that recently. That's been deemed problematic by the Church of the State. You know, the, the whole, like, I was sent to Siberia. It's actually a real thing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I can remember when I was living in Moscow in the 90s. Uh, there was the, it was the 850th anniversary of the city. Right. And uh, Mayor Yuri Lushkov threw this massive party in 1997 um, where he was like cleaning up the city, uh, right? Like scrubbing down the buildings, putting in new lights. He was even seeding clouds before they hit Moscow so it wouldn't rain. Mm -hmm. And of course, he also relocated the homeless people out of Moscow during that time. Oh. Um, it, the Russian word uh, for homeless people is bums. Oh, dear. But it's not the derogatory we use for homeless people here, which is actually comes from the German word bumler, yep. which means to loaf around. It's actually an acronym for people of no fixed address in Russian. Wow. Yeah. In 1864... After the death of Peter's cousin, Peter Kalmykova, who was recognized as the leader of the Dukabors, control of the community passed on to Kalmykova's widow, Lucaria. Lucaria noticed Peter's potential and identified him as a future leader. Peter had married Evdokia Kolnikova in 1879, but in 1881, asserting her powerful position and wanting Peter for herself, Lucaria ordered the annulment of the marriage and took Peter into her home as her personal secretary and groomed him for the position of head of the Dukabor community. After the death of Lucaria in 1886, a struggle ensued among the Dukabors over her successor. As Lucaria was childless, her brothers wanted to seize power, while Peter Verrigan captured the attention of many Dukabors. 
Verrigan was a strikingly good-looking and powerfully built man. He was smart, educated, and self-assured, earning him the nickname Sergeant Major Verrigan. Despite his privileged background, he resonated with ordinary Dukabors and secured the support of the majority faction known as the Large Party. However, Lucaria's brothers convinced Tsarist officials, possibly through bribery, that Verrigan threatened the Russian government. Consequently, in 1887, Verrigan was arrested and subjected to internal exile, spending the following 15 years far away from the Dukabor community in various locations across northern Russia and Siberia. During his time in seclusion, Verrigan came across the writings of a famous Russian writer named Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy was known for his books and beliefs about vegetarianism and promoting peace. In fact, he wrote War and Peace. Tolstoy's ideas deeply moved Verrigan, and they reignited his own Dukabor principles. He even introduced new teachings to the Dukabors. In 1893, Verrigan released a manifesto statement emphasizing the importance of peace. He encouraged the Dukabors to reject violence, give up their belongings, and avoid meat, tobacco, and alcohol. The Dukabors, who supported Verrigan, embraced these teachings and lived by his motto of toil and peaceful life. In 1895, the Dukabors made a powerful statement of their commitment to peace. On Verrigan's birthday, they gathered together and burned all their weapons. This act showed their loyalty to Verrigan and their defiance of the Russian ruler, Tsar Nicholas II. It also led to more persecution from the Russian government and caught the attention of Tolstoy and other pacifist groups worldwide. Verrigan's teachings gained attention internationally thanks to Tolstoy's support. Tolstoy wrote letters and articles that brought awareness to the Dukabor's cause. Some influential people in Canada, like Professor James Maver and Minister of the Interior Clifford Sifton, learned about the Dukabor's through Tolstoy and became supporters. As a result, around 7,500 Dukabor's immigrated to Canada in 1899. Have you ever read any of Tolstoy's works? I have read uh, Anna Karenina. Yes. Yep. Fantastic book. Yeah, great book. It was a long time ago. I barely remember it, and I think I might have been on... Voina uh, Ymir. Did you read that one? Uh, no. War and I, Peace? No, I have <laughs> That's a joke that I have with myself. One day I will get around to reading War and Peace. I know what to get you for Christmas. When I have the time. <laughs> yeah, Tolstoy was actually really pivotal in, in helping the Duke of Boris. Mm -hmm. In 1897, he actually refused the Nobel Peace Prize that he was up for. Yep. Saying that it should be awarded to them instead. Okay. And in his letter requesting the prize go to them, he wrote, quote, No one in our time has served and is continuing to serve the cause of peace more effectively and powerfully than these people. Mm. And he also gave the money of his sales to the novel uh, Resurrection that came out in that year to, to them as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. At first, Verrigan was unsure about moving to Canada, but eventually he joined his followers in 1902 after being released from exile. He arrived in Winnipeg with around 500 other Dukabors. The Canadian government hoped that Verrigan's presence would help control the Dukabors, who some saw as unruly. The Dukabors had caused a stir earlier that year with a large march and had upset their non-Dukabor neighbors. On November 5, 1902, the newspaper Red River Press out of Fort Benton, Montana, published a xenophobic article titled an army of lunatics, subtitled Hundreds of Crazy Dukabors Threaten Trouble in the Northwest Territories. Oh my. Quote, on October 28th in Winnipeg, an unsettling scene unfolded as a group of fervent individuals, gaunt faces and eyes turned skyward, entered Yorktown. <laughs> they chanted peculiar religious hymns, causing a mix of fear and pity among local residents. These individuals were part of the Dukabor colony, also known as Russian Zealots, who had settled in the Canadian Northwest two years earlier, but had now embarked on a march, leaving behind half-harvested crops, abandoning their horses and cattle. A group of 1,600 men, women, and children arrived in Yorkton that morning, carrying infants and the sick on stretchers. They proceeded to the immigration shed, where government agents met and interviewed them with the assistance of interpreters. Through these interpreters, the Dukabors explained to the officials that they did not have a clear destination or specific plans. 
Their primary mission, they declared, was to convert people and find Jesus. Initially, the male members of the group refused the offered shelter for women, children, and the sick. However, after much persuasion, they were convinced to leave the vulnerable individuals behind while they continued their march through the city. The men and women relied on weeds and raw potatoes for sustenance, bearing the signs of emaciation after their long journey from the villages, end quote. So one thing we've learned in researching old newspapers is yeah. beware, quote, the facts. Yeah, because... When, when they're telling stories about the other. Right, when bigots write <laughs> news articles. And and I love how, um, how women yeah. are... <laughs> Are, are are spoken to of in in this in this article as a vulnerable individual, right? So vulnerable individuals like women. Yeah, it's like <laughs> or children who can walk as far as anyone. What a can. weird narrative! Like, sure, they're marching for something that they believe in, but then you paint them as sort of this weird demonic. Like they they've left their crops behind. Oh okay, yes, you they... know what they did there? Like, hey, let's let's do a little bit of a parade and talk about Jesus for a day, and then go back and finish chores. Yeah, exactly. That's probably what happened. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, when Verrigan arrived in Canada, many Dukabors respected and admired him. They saw him as a great leader and held him in high regard. In fact, they thought of him almost like a king. To celebrate his arrival in Canada, the Dukabors changed the village's name from Peter Pevshe to Otradno, which meant going from suffering to joy. They also built a grand community home similar to the Dukabor orphans' homes in Russia. Verigan's mother played an important role in the community home, and she formed a choir made up of young women. Whenever Verrigan traveled to different villages, this choir would accompany him, singing hymns and songs from their oral tradition, the Living Book. One of the choir members was Anastasia Holobova, a young woman with beautiful blue eyes and dark hair. Anastasia became Verrigan's favorite companion and played a significant part in his life. Even though they didn't have a formal wedding, as the Dukabors didn't follow traditional ceremonies, Anastasia was considered Verrigan's constant companion and remained devoted to him until he passed away. Not everyone in the Dukabor community agreed with their new leader. Even though they were in the minority, there were some people who didn't want to follow him. In May 1903, a group within the Dukabor community caused much controversy. They went from village to village, taking off their clothes as a way to show that they didn't care about material possessions or worldly things. They wanted to protest against the changes happening in the commune and express their unhappiness with Peter Verrigan's leadership. They even went further by setting fire to a machine used for binding hay bales in one of the Dukabor communes. This showed their rejection of the modern world and their belief that Verrigan was too focused on it. They called Verrigan a machine man and questioned if he really followed the traditional Dukabor values. This group, known as the Freedomites, continued to cause problems and create tensions within the Dukabor community. Today, out of Canada's approximately 30,000 active Dukabors, there are about 2,500 people with Freedomite heritage. Some Canadians resented the Dukabor community because they lived in their own close-knit and self-sustaining groups. The Dukabors worked together and shared resources, giving them certain advantages over people trying to succeed independently. And this made some people frustrated and jealous. Because of this resentment, the governments of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta put unfair rules in place at different times. These rules were meant to discriminate against the Dukabors and remove their rights. For example, the government refused to officially recognize their marriages, and they were not allowed to vote. These actions were done to limit the influence and independence of the Dukabors in Canadian society. Between 1905 and 1907, there was a high demand for land in Western Canada. The Minister of the Interior, Frank Oliver, started questioning whether the Dukabors should keep the land the government had set aside. The Dukabors didn't want to register their land individually and become official citizens as required by the law. They resisted it because it meant they had to promise loyalty to the government. We don't know if Peter Verrigan, their leader, could have stopped the government from taking their land, but he never got the chance to try. During this time, Verrigan went on a trip to Russia to explore the possibility of returning to their homeland. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, and while he was away, the Canadian government took most of the Dukabor's land. They were only left with the part they were already farming, which was about 123,000 acres. 
The rest of the land was given to other people starting their own farms or Dukabors who had decided to leave the communal system. After the Dukabors lost much of their land, they believed the Canadian government owed them a massive amount of money, around $11 million, as compensation. Verrigan and his associates decided to search for new land to prevent future conflicts with government rules. In 1908, Verrigan stopped in the Kootenai and Boundary Districts of southeastern British Columbia while traveling to view land in Oregon and California. He was impressed by the climate and bought over 6,000 hectares of land. This was just the beginning, as more Dukabors from Saskatchewan moved to British Columbia over the next five years. During World War I, there were non-Dukabor families who were upset because their sons had to join the military, while young Dukabor men were exempted because of their beliefs in pacifism. This caused a lot of tension and anger among people, especially in British Columbia. The Dukabors, including their leader Peter Verrigan, became targets for those who were against them. Verrigan, as he was a prominent and highly visible figure, became a focus of attention and criticism during this time. The Dukabors worked hard to build their new community, planting orchards, operating sawmills, a brick-making plant, and even a jam factory. By the 1920s, there were 90 communal villages in British Columbia. Verrigan saw this as a chance to create a more ideal community where people lived together and shared work, food, and possessions without needing money. It was an opportunity to create a utopian society based on cooperation and simplicity. As the Dukabor community expanded and established the second commune, new difficulties arose. The community now covered a wide area, which meant the Verrigan had to travel long distances to oversee different villages. In the past, he could easily visit scattered villages in Saskatchewan using a horse and carriage or sleigh. However, with a commune spanning from Saskatchewan to British Columbia, he had to rely on train travel. This meant he could only visit certain villages, like the one in Slocan Valley, once a year. Verrigan needed trusted local managers with power and influence positions to manage such a large community. Verrigan's adoption of more modern ways and ideas also caused tension within the group called the Freedomites. They were uncomfortable with the increasing focus on material possessions among the Dukabors. Furthermore, Verrigan faced challenges from a population and government in British Columbia that were less than welcoming. These factors added to the difficulties Verrigan experienced in leading the Dukabor community during this time. Alongside the economic challenges, there were disagreements regarding the education of Dukabor children in public schools, reaching a tipping point in 1922. During the early 20th century, a movement called nativism gained traction in Canada. This movement believed that all children should attend the same public schools regardless of their cultural background. However, the Dukabors had their own unique way of teaching and were hesitant to send their children to these schools. This caused a lot of tension and disagreements between the Dukabors and the Canadian government. During the final years of Peter Verrigan's life, the conflicts escalated. The government began to impose fines and jail sentences on Dukabor families who refused to send their children to public schools. In response, some Dukabors resorted to unconventional forms of protest, such as staging nude demonstrations or even setting fire to school buildings. These acts of resistance further strained the relationship between the Dukabors and the government and within the Dukabor community itself. At this time, there were debates about whether Verrigan was causing these problems. Was he stirring things up so he could stay in power? Verrigan was caught up in that era's larger tensions and misunderstandings eventually becoming a victim of the circumstances in a very tragic way. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? These guys are true iconoclasts. That yeah, right. Um, the old school meeting was literally destroying icons in a church, right? Mm -hmm. um, then in the 20s, this newer meaning of sort of being a person who attacks settled beliefs or institutions is, sure. is what the meaning is. Yeah. And these guys were both, right? They started in the 1700s of like rejecting the icons of the church, like you said. Yep. Um, and I just, I found it interesting. This, I actually didn't know that term nativism yes. that, that you used. Um, it really was about assimilation, wasn't it? Well, yeah, that's then, exactly what it's about. Yeah, and that's what the, the government-run schools were really 
about when they started. That's what we're hearing now. It wasn't about education. It was about assimilation. Right. Right. And, and uh, I like that these guys protested it, actually, the Duke of Ors. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you know, anyone should be forced to send their, their children to public school if they don't want to. Yeah. And uh, some of their methods I might disagree with, but I get why they did it. Sure. You know, I totally get why they did it. You know, at the same time, it's not lost to me or probably not lost to them. That the Canadian government at this time is acting more and more like the authorities in Tsarist Russia. Sure. Sort of becoming what they supposedly are against, right? Yeah. So, yeah, initially they came to Canada thinking, oh, well, we won't be persecuted here. But guess what? Yeah, just leave them alone. Let yeah. them farm. Yeah, let them do their thing. On the fateful evening of October 28th, 1924, Peter Vergen, esteemed leader of the Dukabor community, embarked on a journey from brilliant British Columbia. He boarded a train belonging to the Canadian Pacific Railway, train number 11, the Kettle Valley Line, the lifeline connecting communities and carrying people to their destinations. As the train chugged along the tracks, Vergen might have gazed out the window of his first-class car, 1586, contemplating the future of his beloved Dukabor community. Little did he know this would be his final journey. Kind of odd that he was in first class, no? <laughs> yeah. You know, a person who's supposed to be the leader of a group who eschews materialism. Yeah, I don't know on that line what different options there were. So it may be just like, here's where the people go, well, which is first if, class. If they call it first class, there must be something else. Yeah. Right? I Coach, didn't dig in that regular, far. Regular class. Yeah. Anyway. Bit hypocritical. Is it? I think so. The events that unfolded that night would forever change the Dukabor community. The details surrounding Verrigan's departure and the tragedy that awaited him remain etched in the memories of those who witnessed the sorrowful departure of their revered leader. At about one in the morning, on October 29th, a horrific explosion ripped through Verrigan's railcar, blowing away the roof and sides of the coach. Peter Verrigan and seven others perished in the explosion. Fourteen others were injured. Some of the train crew used fire extinguishers to put out the fire going from car to car, while others assisted the injured, many of whom had been blown right out of the rail car. The explosion happened in a remote area called Farron, deep in the Monashi Mountains. Getting to the site was challenging because there were no roads leading there. Instead, people had to use trains or small handcars to reach the scene. Dukabors, police officers, Canadian Pacific Railway officials, and government explosives experts all hurried to the area to investigate. Reporters interviewed witnesses, including injured individuals who were taken to different places for medical care. Some went to Grand Forks, while others went to Nelson. Constable G.F. Killam of the Grand Forks RCMP detachment had been one of the first investigators on the scene and described the human carnage after the blast. At first, the death toll was believed to be five. Here's some of what he said. Quote, on arrival, I found the still smoldering remains of a passenger coach standing on, with no evidence of having left, the rails, with nothing but charred embers and ironwork remaining. There appeared nothing about the construction of the coach that would have caused the explosion. Killam said that he'd checked the gas tanks used to light the car and found those intact. They had not caused the blast. His report continues. The remains of a human body burned almost beyond recognition was found immediately in front of the right wheel, the lower end of the body resting against the rear end of the gas tank, resting against the end of the rear gas tank, the back resting against the iron support rods of the coach. This body was the only one found still in the car at the time of our arrival, and apparently was the only one not rescued. This body is believed to be that of the only person not accounted for, a Mr. P.J. Campbell of Sandpoint, Idaho. Killam continued. On the south side of the coach, portions of the woodwork had been blown up the side of the mountain some 300 feet, and closer to the track, heavy portions of roofing were found some 40 feet clear of the point of the explosion. From the spot where this coach had been when the explosion occurred, portions of clothing and passengers' personal effects were strewn on the ground everywhere. Opposite the spot where the western end of the coach had been, the corpse of one Hakim Singh, formerly of Grand Forks, was lying minus the head, right arm, and upper part of the chest. 
35 feet east of this, the missing arm and portion of the chest was lying. On the north side of the coach, the wreckage was strewn about equal to that of the other side. Here, the corpse of Peter Verrigan, Dukabor leader, was lying face downward, its head toward the track with a considerable number of wounds on the body, but easily recognizable. This corpse was a little forward of where the center of the coach had been, and about 25 feet from the track. Some 15 to 20 feet west of Verrigan's corpse, and about the same distance from the track, the corpse of John McKee, MLA of Grand Forks, was lying. The body was practically uninjured, end quote. Well, that's all pretty gruesome, isn't it? It's gross, yeah. That was a very powerful explosion. Yeah. yeah. Like, it blew the people literally out of the train. It's incredible. Yeah. News reports of the explosion appeared in the morning editions of papers across the province. From the Times Colonist, the main article on the front page screamed, Peter Verrigan, J.L. McKee, MPP-elect, two Dukabors, two others, killed by explosion in railway car in southern B.C. Kettle Valley train was near Farron when blast occurred this morning. Gas tanks of car found intact and belief is held explosive inside car was set off purposely or accidentally. Plot against Verrigan, Dukabor leader, is suggested. Quote, wreckage burned. The explosion in a Kettle Valley railway car which killed five persons and wounded 14 happened when the train was two miles west of Farron shortly after one o'clock. Besides wrecking the coat and hurling the occupants about, the explosion set fire to the ruins which were consumed. The rest of the train was not damaged. Two of the victims were killed outright, two died on the way to Castlegar, and another on the final stage to Nelson. After the explosion, the train proceeded to Grand Forks with the coastbound passengers and with five of the injured. End quote. The next day, reporters gathered more information to pass on to their readers as the investigation continued. Coroner's inquests were quickly organized in Grand Forks and Nelson to investigate the deaths and the cause of the explosion. These inquests, along with the reports from police who were present and participated in the investigation, provide the main evidence and information about what happened during that tragic event. The cause of the blast was a prime concern for investigators. Staff Sergeant Ernest Gammon wrote in his report, quote, The first report received was that the gas tanks on the day coach had exploded and shattered the coach afterwards setting fire to it. At about 8.45 a.m., it was reported by the CPR officials that the gas tanks were intact and that it could not have been the gas tanks that had caused the explosion, end quote. Had the explosion been caused by one or both tanks, they would have been blown to pieces. At the inquest, train railmen testified that they'd seen no suspicious packages in the exploded car. One witness, passenger Patrick O'Shaughnessy of No Fixed Address, testified and gave a harrowing account of the explosion from his point of view. Quote, I went to sleep and the next thing I heard was an explosion. It sounded to me like a pistol shot. Not a big noise. I saw a sheet of fire in front of me when I opened my eyes. I then became unconscious. I came to again, but I found I could not move my lower limbs. I heard groaning. And Scanlon, another passenger, said to me, come on, and he pulled me out. I saw a news agent kneeling on the car. His face was blackened, end quote. A CPR constable stationed at Nelson, Jay House, testified about having found what was believed to be parts of a bomb amid the rubble. Quote, where the explosion took place at about 50 feet up the hill on the bank, I found a part of a dry cell battery. I also found the remains of an alarm clock where the coach burned up. I think there's a piece of copper wire attached to one of the cog wheels. I made a careful search of the wreckage but found nothing else. I produce exhibits dry cell and clock A and B. I think the clock and dry cell are part of a time bomb. End quote. Inspector of the Bureau of Explosives, D.W. McNabb, also testified about seeing evidence of a bomb. Quote, After examination of the car... I can hardly escape the conclusion in view of the havoc that was wrought that the explosion was due solely to one of the highest explosives placed inside the car either accidentally or by design. McNabb went on to testify that if there had been a bomb, the use of the explosive alone would not have caused the extensive and sustained fire. He believed there had to be some other flammable liquid present. Several other expert witnesses concurred with these assessments. The inquest verdict determined that the deaths were, quote, 
as a result of the discharge of a high explosive placed within passenger coach number 1586 of the Canadian Pacific Railway by some person or persons unknown, end quote. Peter Berrigan and the others had been murdered, but by whom? There were plenty of suspects who would have loved to see Verrigan dead. Some conspiracy theorists believe that the B.C. and Canadian governments were two of the most likely suspects. In 1925, the year after the blast, British Columbia Premier John Oliver added to the suspicions when he said, quote, from the very first, they, the Dukabors, have been a source of trouble, end quote. The Soviet government saw Verrigan as a troublemaker there as well. And we all know the Soviets are not above a little murder to silence a dissident. There was also the KKK and nativists from CanadianMysteries.ca. Quote, Canadians who looked down on anyone who wasn't born in the country, known as nativists, certainly existed before the Dukabors arrived in 1899, but in the years following, nativist hatred burned more intensely. A country that prided itself on Britishness saw a massive influx of people from Eastern and Southern Europe, India, and China in the early 1900s. More than a few people in the host community resented it, and those in Western Canada particularly resented the Dukabors, who insisted on keeping their own distinct culture. In parts of British Columbia, locals began to label the newcomers Dukes, while calling themselves white men. World War I, 1914-1918, only raised the level of antagonism, as a condition of them coming to Canada, the federal government had exempted Dukabors from military service, but Union Jack-waving Canadians resented what they saw as cowards and shirkers who benefited from the wartime economic boom. World War I also brought on the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Now ethnic discrimination was compounded by suspicion of those Russian immigrants gathered into their commune. Were they just disguised Bolsheviks? Nativism also meshed perfectly with the message of the Ku Klux Klan. It had roots in the racist environment of post-Civil War America, but, but by the early 1920s, Canada also saw Klan recruiting drives, and the name itself had come to convey a violent message. A news article from Grand Forks in March 1925 declared, quote, Citizens are talking of Klan methods following school fires that were linked to Dukabors. Hmm. Aye, aye, aye. It's interesting. I think in that quote, they, they mentioned Union Jack-waving Canadians. Sure. And that, that's not just a figure of speech. Until 1965, the Union Jack, or if you want to be technically correct, it's the Union flag. It's only called a Jack if it's on a ship. Yeah. Um, was the flag of Canada. Yeah. Um, and it's odd to think, what, you were born in 69, I was born yeah. in 1970? Yeah. The flag's only been around like four years before you, five years before I was born. Well, there was a flag specific to Canada that wasn't... That wasn't the official flag. It had the Canadian coat of arms right. on red with things. Sure. The, the actual official flag that was... Yeah. That was... Was, was the waved, Union was, flag. Was the full-on Union flag, yeah. Wow. Other factors inside the Dukabors were also suspected, most politically motivated. However, Verrigan's longtime companion, Anastasia Holobova, might have been involved out of the age-old motive, jealousy. Berrigan had been traveling with 17-year-old Mary Strelev, also killed in the blast. She'd allegedly acted as Verrigan's secretary the year before his death. Perhaps Anastasia had seen a challenger for her place beside the Dukabor leader and had literally blown the whole thing up. According to CanadianMysteries.ca, in 1964, journalist Sima Holt suggested a new theory about the death of Peter Verrigan. She proposed that Verrigan's own son could have been involved in his death, but the Dukabors widely rejected this idea. After Verrigan's death, there was a power struggle between his son and Anastasia Holobova to become the new leader of the Dukabor community. Verrigan's son eventually emerged as the leader, but he faced many challenges during his reign, including his struggles with alcohol and gambling. His leadership coincided with the Great Depression in Canada and the destructive actions of the Radical Sons of Freedom group. Ultimately, the communal experiment ended in 1938, and Peter's son died the following year. Maybe, just maybe, everyone had gotten it wrong. Perhaps it was an accident after all. According to the CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, during the 1950s and 60s, some Dukabors, known as the Sons of Freedom, caused trouble by doing protests that involved being naked, having parades, and even bombing buildings. 
In response, the police took the children of these protesters and put them in a special school in New Denver, B.C. The children were there for several years until their mothers agreed to send them to regular public schools. In the 1990s, some of these children sued because they said that they were mistreated at the school. They wanted the government to say sorry and to give them some money. Although the lawsuits didn't succeed, a report in 1999 said the government should apologize. In 2004, the government expressed regret instead of giving a proper apology. Some survivors were upset and tried to get help from the B.C. Human Rights Tribunal, but in 2013, they were told that their race, ancestry, or religion didn't play a role in the government's actions. Canada, now we know, has a long history of using schools as weapons for social engineering. Right. Right? The you know, all, all the news in, in the past number of years of the residential schools right. and this. I think race, ancestry, religion didn't play a role in the government actions. Maybe it's bullcrap. Or, or if it's not, I think it's the fact that, you know, they wanted to be free from government indoctrination and no government's going to apologize for stopping that, are they? No. Right. In the 1970s and 80s, many Dukabors rediscovered their heritage and worked to keep their traditions alive. They formed choirs, language programs, and peace groups, and some even went to Russia to meet with Dukabors who'd stayed there. Artists, historians, and writers also created works that celebrated Dukabor culture while adapting to the modern world. Today, the Dukabor community faces challenges and their numbers have declined. There are about 30,000 descendants of the original settlers in Canada, but only one-third actively practice Dukabor traditions. Most Dukabors live in the Kootenai region of British Columbia, with smaller groups in other parts of BC, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. The largest Dukabor group is the community of Dukabors, led by John J. Verigen Jr., while the Sons of Freedom Dukabors live near Krestova, BC. Other Dukabors are spread across Western Canada. I've actually met some Dukabors. Oh, cool. So I used to work for a company. We had a, a cannabis grow-up mm-hmm. in Creston, uh, which is near Castlegar. Yeah. And, and this Crestova is actually just slightly north of, of Castle, Castlegar. And there's a, a, a Dukabor Discovery Center there. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I added a link to the Dukabor Discovery Center Museum uh, into the show notes because it'd be a, it, it would be an interesting trip to take to learn about a different culture and it's it's such a beautiful part of bc yeah i love it up there it's it's very nice that's right it's time for voicemails you can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty. Let's listen to our first voicemail. Uh, see who gave us a call this week. Mm, it might, somebody is going to talk to us here. Hey, Mike, Matthew, Steve. Uh, this is Ryan Collin from Montreal. Uh, Love your show. You guys keep me company on my uh, two-hour drive uh, to work every day. So uh, I'm not going to tell you what I do because I know that uh, Matthew likes to guess that. Um, And uh, congratulations, Mike, on moving to Langley. All my family's from there. I've got tons of family in Walnut Grove. Uh, Something that might be interesting for you guys to explore is uh, some of the stories around the Coquitlam uh, Insane Asylum. I can't remember the name of it for... uh, the moment but if i do i'll call back and uh let you know exactly what the name is um there was a lot of uh shady stuff going on and uh, that might be interesting for you guys to explore in a future episode uh so with that i wish you a great day and uh go take well a thank you hat. ryan what where's so ryan's from montreal i love what, montreal so what we does don't ryan get, we don't get a, we don't get enough montreal callers no I'm we so don't happy ryan called yeah so what does he do He's, he's a male go-go dancer at Fufuni Electric. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there you go. Ryan will know what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm sure he the will. Foofs. Le Foof. Anyway, uh, so the place that he's talking about is Riverview, which is the uh, uh, psychiatric hospital there. Right. And That's in movies all the time. It's now. in movies all the time. I have, 
uh, worked in that place and have explored it because I was in location. So I got to look through all the nooks and crannies of that hospital. Plus I worked in security at the security company that was responsible for taking care of that place. So I right. have seen all the bits of um, Riverview, but I'm not sure what he's talking about as far as shady stuff going on there. I mean, there were some people were treated awfully at times in those institutions, but I don't know of anything specific. So I'm really curious you, to... You, you're going to look it up. Then. I'm going to look it up and dig in and find a little more. I know all the shady things that happened in the X-Files that took place there. Yes, because you've been watching the X-Files <laughs> recently. Uh, let's listen to another phone call because we have a four this week. All righty. Hi, guys. I just wanted to call um, and say that I'm really thankful this week um, for your podcast. I've been listening to um, some older episodes that I hadn't had a chance to listen to yet and kind of using it as a distraction. I'm in the middle of the um, Nova Scotia 4 fires down in Shawburn County. Um, I'm not evacuated, but most of my family are, and my husband's a volunteer firefighter <laughs> fighting the fire. So um, it's been a stressful time, but I've kind of just been when your pod, your podcast has been one of the things keeping me busy, so I just wanted to say I appreciate um, you guys and everything that you do. And um, anyways, I just wanted to give you a shout out. Um, you know, you guys do a good job, and and I and I really like the uh, the sleep episode, the uh, Empress of Ireland. Thanks for covering that. Um, Shitbox, there's a is a. Um, is an interest of mine, so I always like when you guys cover those stories. Anyways, um, thanks for everything you do. Um, this is just more of a personal shout-out for you guys. It doesn't need to be played on the show. I just wanted to say that. Um, um, and anyways, you guys uh, have a good week. Thanks. Bye. There you go. So we know what you do. <laughs> you, ta you take care of a little human. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I've been following all the, the fires. Like, when we're recording... Uh, it is just a couple of days after the rain started and it looks like things are getting to be contained there. I know the Tantalan fire is contained right now. I'm not too sure about the one in Shelburne, but that's closer to home. So, you know, mom and dad have been concerned and everybody I know there, you know, I saw friends posting on Facebook, safe from the fire. Some friends have been evacuated. Uh, my sister's old neighborhood in Tantalan is one of the ones that was on fire. So, yeah, it, this one, that one hit hit home a little bit for me. Yeah. I think all Canadians' jobs this week is being rain dancers. Yeah. To try to make sure that those fires get stopped. There you go. On the East Coast and, yeah. and Alberta. Well, and they're starting here in they're BC again. They're starting here now. Yeah. I saw that Oak Ridge was on fire the other day, the new... Yeah, I was watching it from my window. Yeah. It looked huge. It is huge. I was freaking, it was. I was freaking out because I can, I can see them like popping up over the hill. Yeah. Right? And uh, it was, I looked it up, it was uh, just some building material. And the fire department was like, the fire looked, a, from the smoke, it looked a lot bigger than it was. Right. But I was like, because from my vantage point... I thought the tower that they were building yeah. was on fire. But it was the building material within the tower. Uh, kind of between the towers because it's oh, this massive complex, gotcha. isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, well. Anyway, um, <laughs> hoping everyone is safe and sound uh, yeah. from the fires now. Yeah, you know, climate change isn't real, Matthew. Anyway, moving on. Mike said that sarcastically. <laughs> Next voicemail. <laughs> Mike and Matthew, my name is Martina. I am calling from a little town called Renews in Newfoundland. I have listened to your podcast, Mike, since the very beginning, and uh, you do fantastic work. In fact, you covered um, the Dana Bradley case um, from Newfoundland a number of years ago, and were in contact with my dad before he passed about that. Anyway, I just finished listening to Long Time Gone, the murders of Tanya Van. Kulin, Berg, and Jay Cook. And the discussion at the end is really why I'm calling um, Matthew's opinions on the DNA process and that sorts of stuff. I am a third year memorial student in a criminology degree. And, and from a criminological point of view, 
DNA has been a godsend um, in helping to solve crimes, particularly crimes that uh, that happened many, many years ago when it wasn't available and it's gone unsolved. Um, and so from that standpoint, from that standpoint only, actually, it is a fantastic thing. It does have to be tempered, however, as Matthew said, your DNA is your DNA. And legally, it cannot be shared from any of the websites like 23andMe, Ancestry, uh, the Genome Project, et cetera, without your express consent. Uh, I'm not sure how things down in the United States work with that, but uh, for instance, 23andMe is where I'm registered and Ancestry, and they would have to expressly ask me for my permission to share my DNA. It's not a part of my agreement with them when I share my DNA specifically for my own ancestry purposes. Um, however, Matthew brings up a good point because I think as we start to see more of this happening, we may actually start to see some um, new legal precedents being set and a lot of legal arguments in the coming years with regard to DNA. Um, you know, criminals, of course, as soon as they're arrested these days have their DNA taken. But what happens to the criminal who is found not guilty? His DNA is still there or her DNA is still there. And, you know, how is that used? And is it, you know, is it legal to continue to use that and that sorts of thing? Anyway, I think you guys are great. I really enjoy listening to your podcast. You are so empathetic towards the victims and uh, and you're crazy funny. Anyway, guys, have a great day. And, hey, go take a shit in your tooth, eh? Yeah, there you go. Thank you, Martina. My sister went to Memorial yeah. University in Newfoundland, and uh, Memorial uh, is also famous for uh, another author. His name is Elliot Layton, and he wrote a book that I really enjoyed, a true crime book called Hunting Humans. Uh, and the first U.S. edition was called Compulsive Killers. And he also wrote another book with uh, another author, Linda Chaff, Serial Murder, Modern Scientific Perspectives. Hmm. So interesting, interesting connections to Memorial University in Newfoundland. Hmm. So, um, so she, she's a criminologist, mm -hmm. but where does she want to apply her criminology? Is she going to move somewhere maybe in Canada and do that, Matthew? Or is... I think she is going to be a criminologist who uh, helps... Uh, Hollywood and filmmakers get the details right. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds that sounds appropriate. Yeah, she found she figured that would pay better, so she's doing that. Well, of course, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you know, if you can be a consultant on Hollywood film, well, she just I, consulted us, and we're practically Hollywood. <laughs> we're Langleywood. <laughs> Langleywood. <laughs> Langleywood. No, 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 Langleywood. Anyway. Thanks for calling, and uh, we appreciate your kind words and we insight. Do, Thank yeah. You. Uh, here's another one. This is our last one. Hi, Mike and Mike. I'm so sorry. I'm forgetting the other host name. I feel terrible. Um, my parents were actually associated with Pam, the girl who you covered in the last episode. Uh, my dad was actually good friends with her sister, and my mom knew her and her sister, Jennifer. So both my parents knew Jennifer, or no Jennifer. I don't know the, the tense that I'm supposed to speak in. Um, and Billy and CJ, along with the Miller brothers, um, they were convinced that they did it, like, they watched this whole thing go down. They went to OHS, which is Ormucto High School. Um, they were there at the time that, like, they weren't at the event um, that led to our unfortunate passing. But they watched the police come into the school. They were there in the school when the police were questioning and talking to people. And when my parents, who are both from Ormucto, got word of this through a Facebook post, they were shocked that a podcast was actually covering this. I remember watching The Dark Waters of Crime with my parents, and they're like, yeah, we knew her. We knew Pam. And just 
hearing you guys cover it is shocking. And hearing my parents talk about it, because they've never talked about it. And I studied police foundations, and I actually wanted to cover this case um, as one of my papers, and I did. And I had to find it all through the internet, because both of my parents didn't really want to talk about it, because that's how hard-hitting it was to them. Like, it was terrifying. She was in grade nine when she passed, and it was horrible, my mom said. And... Yeah. Go take a shit in your hat. Hope you have a good day. Be safe. Have fun. Well, thank you. Yeah, we got, uh, I got another email from uh, Gwen, who I mentioned in the episode, uh, kept a blog about her feelings about Pamela Bischoff. And uh, Gwen was uh, moved by our episode as, uh, as we were moved by her words. And, um, said that she was going to pass on that we had done that to uh Pamela's sisters so yeah it's uh it's really interesting hearing from people who who lived through it whose folks lived through it how the stories are told within the communities um there's a new book about uh Carissa Boudreau uh who was the little girl who was murdered by her mother in uh, Bridgewater, where I'm from. And people have differing opinions on whether or not that book should exist. Uh, it's really, really interesting. I mean, I, we want to tell a story from the perspective of the impact that it has on the families and community. We're not interested in talking about a murderer. I'm not interested in that. It's, the show has evolved over time, where... We have kind of gone away from that. That's, that's typical fare for true crime to talk about. Here's this murderer. Say you pick one like Randy Kraft, the freeway killer in California, killed a lot of guys. And the guys are just footnotes, really. Mm. And that's what I don't want to happen. I want the killer to be the footnote. Yeah. So anyway, do you have it, any feelings on that? Well, it, it's... Um... You know, I I was uh, had had a friend uh, who murdered um, people, and um, like I've I've said to you, Mike, I, I will I will never cover it mm -hmm. because I was because I know it, and I'm just trying to put my head into the into this the heads of community members in small towns mm -hmm. where sometimes you just want it to okay, it's done. I, we just want it to go away now. There are cases that I won't cover for that reason. Right. I, will, I will read something from a family member where they say, if I never have to hear that again, I'm happy. Yeah. And so if someone has said that, yeah. I'll, I'll move away from that. I won't do that. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it's good uh, to, to, to be um, sensitive to those things, right? Yeah. And speaking of being sensitive, I'm so glad that this caller has put my ego in check. <laughs> right? <laughs> His name is Matthew. It's, it's okay. It's, it's, it's it, the Mike and Mike show. Well. <laughs> no, I was laughing. It was quite funny. It is so, funny. Everyone remembers yeah. my dog's name, but not mine. Yeah, Steve. Everybody knows Mike Steve. and then there's that guy who has Steve. Steve's dad. <laughs> Mike and Steve's dad. Anyway. Thanks, Thanks for, call. for that call. We appreciate it. <laughs> That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All righty. We do have some patrons this week. Uh... Let's start with someone coming in at the Blue Noser tier from Calgary, Alberta. Calgary. Susan Ross. Susan Ross from Calgary. Susan Ross from Calgary. Yeah. And what does Susan do there in Calgary? I think she's an absurdity advocate. An absurdity advocate. Yeah. She likes to spread nonsensical humor to the world. 
Oh, weird. Yeah, and she does this by like satire pranks and whimsical performances on on the corner in Calgary in front of that building that looks like a large urinal with the with the wire head in front of it. Oh, okay. If you're from Calgary, you know which building I'm talking about. Oh. Yeah, that's what she does. She just makes life absurdly funny. Well, there you go. Yeah. That, that is kind <laughs> of fun. Um, well, thank you very much, Susan Ross. New patron, new patron. Next, we have David Hubbard. And I don't know where David is from. David Hubbard? David Hubbard, yes. You don't know where David is from? Well, I know. I've heard of his mother, old mother Hubbard. He's from Spokane. Spokane, Washington, which is Spokane. It's pronounced Spokane. uh, Well, that's my Britishness coming out. I'm not not knowing how to pronounce it. Is it Spokane or Spokane? Spokane, yeah. Okay, Spokane. I've been through there. I stayed there one night when I was traveling back to uh, uh, Nova Scotia across the country. And uh, one of our, one of the serial killers that we've spoken about, uh, the happy face killer was from there. Or the smiley face. I can't remember. He was the smiley face. Yes. He was actually born in Chilliwack, which is why we talked about him. If anyone's from... Spokane or Spokane. It's Spokane. Spokane. I want to hear from you, please. Okay. And I want to hear if some people call it Spokane, if it's a version that's allowed. It isn't. Because all this time since I moved here, I've called it Spokane. Okay. So David Hubbard. David. Is from, so what does he do there? David has an underground speakeasy. An underground speakeasy? Yeah. A little illegal bar. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Well, there you go. It, it, uh, it looks like a little taxi stand, you know, when you can, sure. um, near where all the clubs are. And, and like the little bulletin board in the back of those taxis, it's actually a door and you can go and there's a pool table. And Do you it, have to have a password to get in? You need to know somebody. Who can get okay. In. So it's, okay. It's, it's one of those. filled with dealers and politicians and stuff like that. Dealers and politicians. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he serves pop-off vodka. Oh, okay. But he puts it in absolute vodka bottles. Well, what a dirty trick. Yeah. well thank you david next we have someone who just calls herself paula just paula just paula like sharon madonna we just have we have paula just paula just paula she she owns a little bookstore where is she from though paula's books yeah in spokane (laughs) it's a different place (laughs) it's another place oh dear (laughs) yeah so she has a she is a bookstore, and she specializes in, um, remember when you are a little kid and you'd put leaves inside books? Yes. And squish the leaves? All oh. the books, she's collected those books? Yes. From around the world, and she sells books with leaves that were pressed into them. Oh. Yeah. Well, there you go. Every book in there, some kid pressed a leaf in it. You sure she's not from Scutra, so... Socotra Island in Yemen, and it's a, a fascinating, unique place located in the Arabian Sea, about 380 kilometers south of the Arabian Why would Peninsula. she be from there? I don't know. Just random. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's from Spokane. Well, thank you, Paula. Sisters, it's twin city with Spokane, Washington. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Paula. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, oh, dear. We are idiots. But fun idiots. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Next we have Sharon Rocco. And I'm going to blow up her spot here. I know she's from New Zealand because she, uh, although she doesn't tell me that, her email address indicates that that might be the case. Okay. So New Zealand. And her last name's Rocco. Yep. Yep. R-O-C-O. Okay. Yep. So what does Sharon do there? randomly somewhere in New Zealand. So New Zealand has good coffee. Is she in the... Like Australia The does? North Island or South? South. Which, okay. She runs a cafe called Rococo's. Rococo's. Yeah. So she has a great cocoa. And Rococo's she, Coffee Co. Yeah. Is the name of the company. Exactly. Yes. I, I know it well. Yeah. Uh, there I, you go. I went... When I was uh, doing astral travel, I went there. <laughs> Astral travel. Ast- you have to get your ass into an airplane and do real travel, Mike. I do. That's I'm, your astral travel. I'm planning on doing some more. Do more. Do more. So next up, uh, we've we're done with patrons, but I know where this pay. Thank this you, patrons. Donut money donor Oop. is named Stephanie Thibodeau. 
And Stephanie, Stephanie is from your neck of the woods, London, Ontario. We know Thibodeau. We do. Yeah. Yeah. She's from London, Ontario. London, Ontario. And what does, she says, thanks for a wonderful podcast. Get a donut and coffee on me. Well, thank you. We had actually, today, we had Buddha set tables with chicken. We did. They were yummy, weren't they? They were very good. We eat healthy here. Sometimes. Unless it's Matthew's turn to bring food, we eat healthy. <laughs> I almost brought a pizza today, left over <laughs> from yesterday. Oh, dear. Anyway. Stephanie works, uh, she's a hockey coach for the oh. for the London Knights. Of the London Knights? I yeah. was going to say, what team does she coach? Well, London Knights, that's quite prestigious. I know. Don't I sound straight, like actually naming hockey You teams? never sound straight. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I don't know. Thank you, Thibodeau. Exactly. Thank you, Stephanie. Oh, dear. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for this week's episode. Uh, we really appreciate you listening. We and do. Until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Because there are enough of those already. Yeah, there's enough bad apples everywhere. Bye. Bye.